to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Welcome to Beer Me on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. During my time in culinary school, I gained an appreciation for good beer and continued my studies in beer at grad school at NYU. Since then, I have been a beer director, beer bar general manager, and I get to continue to explore the beer world with all of you wonderful listeners. Every week, I will have a guest on the show from different parts of the beer world, from brewers, importers, educators, and this will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. So before we dive into this week's episode, I want to uh, send a great thank you out to Teresa McCullough of uh, the Smithsonian uh, American History Museum. Uh, She is their beer historian. Uh, she invited me to last call. Uh, this was kind of the end event for the Smithsonian's fourth annual Food History Weekend. The weekend was filled with amazing panels and activities. There was a gala that kicked it off on Thursday night. Uh, so last call was a really cool event where uh, there was a panel of brewers. Uh, so you had uh, bow and arrow, um, Cajun fire, and New Glarus Brewing as well as Scratch Brewing Company. So you had the Midwest, the uh, Southwest, uh, the South, um, as well as uh, you know, all these different regions represented. And it was a really great discussion on how uh, region affects beer and beer affects region uh, and how those kind of themes come into play. It was a really, really great mix of people all sponsored. This event was all sponsored by the Brewers Association. Uh, so it was just, it was a really, really informative night and they were definitely pouring uh, some really delicious beers. So thank you for that. Always keep up to date with what the Smithsonian is doing uh, for beer and all the cool events and different things that they uh, make available to the public. So today we are going to kind of keep that uh, history theme going. Um, I have a very cool guest coming down from Baltimore. So this is Nick, the Baltimore beer trekker Nichols. Uh, he teaches enrichment courses on beer history and appreciation at Johns Hopkins University, uh, as well as Howard Community College. He has given multiple lectures at different historical societies, and if you want a lecture he is available upon request. Uh, So Nick, thank you so much for coming down to DC. Thank you. So I want to dive right in here. Uh, Just this past September, um, there was a new uh, article published in the Journal of Archaeological um, Science and Reports. Uh, There's a researcher, Li Lu, and, you know, a scientist through uh, Stanford University, And they discovered, uh, as they were studying uh, different uh, stone mortars within a cave in Israel, uh, that the making of alcohol uh, definitely uh, predates uh, the cultivation of cereals and breads. Uh, And to quote uh, this professor, uh, she stated, this discovery indicates that making alcohol was not necessarily a result of agricultural surplus production, but it was developed for ritual purposes and spiritual needs, at least to some extent prior to agriculture. So this is a 
this is a big deal. Yes, definitely. Uh, in my beer classes, I've taught that beer was about 10,000 years old, mm-hmm. mostly based on China and Egyptian you know, discoveries. This, and then the issue is, which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, mm-hmm. Beer, uh, how did it, was it discovered, either with bread or with grain? So either some grain was left out and it fermented overnight, or some bread was left out and it fermented overnight, or you know, within a couple of days. And the brave man who drank that frothy mess. So, <laughs> and now this kind of says, well, it's even further back, thirteen to 15,000 years ago, they mm-hmm. were making beer. And, you know, the word beer, though, versus alcohol. So there's been remnants even before of alcohol production. Yeah. And in fact, what's interesting is apparently cavemen learned a long time ago to watch what the birds and some mammals, small mammals, were eating on the ground. And they noticed that rotten fruit, when rotten fruit ferments, mm-hmm. In, you know, it, it spoils and ferments and it produces alcohol because of the sugar. And they noticed that the animals that ate these, these fruits from the ground, like rotten apples or whatever, peaches, grapes, mm-hmm. would act a little crazy. So it's almost like it's in our DNA to be, to be intoxicated because we follow these animals around mm-hmm. eating this fruit that was rotting on the ground. So that was just trial and error. That had nothing to do with actually producing it on purpose. It's they a just, high risk trial It was <laughs> like the guy who ate the first oyster. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So it's just interesting that, you know, was beer on purpose? Was it discovered or was just, was it on purpose or was it discovered? And this kind of sheds light that it was probably on purpose. But they figured out that something f- turns into a substance that makes you feel funny when you drink it, and that's alcohol. So sugar being converted into alcohol through some ma- magical powder or something that comes out of the sky. And that's a whole other topic. Yeah. And it's interesting that um, even our, you know, ancestors would crave that feeling. Um, It is not a a natural feeling to be intoxicated. And you have to think of, you know, what their lives would have been like. You know, this is escapism. So, I mean, obviously their lives were difficult and challenging. Um, But yeah, I... Big tangent, but at some point in the in the near future, I want to dive into the psychology of, of why animals you, want to get drunk. The history of intoxication. <laughs> Someone yeah. go out and write that book, please. Because it's, it's definitely different than the history of beer. It's a little, it is a tangent. <laughs> so uh, I want you to speak a little bit about, you know, what uh, drinking was in the ancient world. Um, and when I say ancient, I mean... Uh, Sumerian or Babylonian, kind of that era. Right. So beer, politics, religion, economics, Mm -hmm. it's all been around forever. And beer drinking in the ancient times, you know, Egyptians, Babylonians, Sumerians, uh, was more ritualistic for a lot of it. A lot of it was part of religious ceremonies. A lot of times it was only drank by noble, wealthy royalty, uh, kings, queens, noble people, especially in South America and some tribes, the only person who was allowed to drink the beer or alcohol was the priest, the high priest or the, the king or the, the leader of the village. The commoners weren't allowed to drink beer in a lot of cultures. Enter the Egyptians, though. They had to build the pyramids. It takes a lot of water to quench the thirst of thousands of people building pyramids, so they had to brew beer. So, in fact, several gallons of beer had to be, be produced per day for each person, those slaves and or paid labor, to build the pyramids. So they had to have massive breweries around all the different pyramids. There'd be breweries at the bases of all of them to feed people because it was liquid bread at that point because they couldn't really just drink the water. So the Egyptians, that was when that 
that change, that morph happened within the beer world as far as changing from an elite beverage to uh, everybody drinking beer? I think they you know, they figured out that drinking water can be harmful. Mm-hmm. But if they had proper springs that had clean water, there's proper springs all over the world that can still get clean water. But if you were in search of large quantities of water to quench people's thirst that was definitely diseased and germ-free, boiling the water and making alcohol, which is also a protein source, and so it's liquid bread, mm-hmm. was, was the way to go. And the Egyptians, I think, kind of perfected that, and it got spread from the masses, from the Tigris Euphrates of Africa to the Roman legions to you know the war parties going all over the world spreading the beer recipes. So, and, and something that I find uh, interesting, especially in the with Bab- the Babylonians was, you know, they were, you know, the group of people that kind of refined the drinking straw. Um, and the drinking straw was a big part of the communal experience of beer. Uh, beer was served in these, uh, you know, giant pots and everybody had their own straw and that's how you consumed it. And the straws kind of varied based on, uh, status. So somebody who is very, very poor would have a reed straw and then someone who's very, very rich would have, you know, a gold straw. And this was because even though there was some kind of primitive filtration, you inevitably ended up with beer that was, uh, you know, had some sediment in it. And I think it's very interesting in that, uh, back then straws were prized and necessary and, uh, a foggy beer filled with sediment was, uh, look down upon. And nowadays, in 2018, straws are shunned <laughs> and looked down upon right. and hazy, foggy beer is prized. Uh, so look how far we've come. <laughs> you, you can buy a $10 straw now that fits in your pocket. It collapses so that we can save the turtles kind of thing. Yeah, so the other reason with straws, well, the stuff floated on the top of the beer too, not mm-hmm. just on the bottom. So you kind of had to drink from the middle and kind of, unless you got a mouthful of protein or some spent grains, my uncle also did that, but it was for a different reason, apparently. It's supposed to get you intoxicated faster. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was also uh, the very important uh, Ninkasi, uh, and this was the Samaritan goddess of beer. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, well, about her? Every culture has a god of mm-hmm. beer. It's Gambrinus. Yeah. You know, Gambrinus. There's just so many. Uh, Enki, that's E-N-K-I. Enki was a god of beer mentioned in uh, Gilgamesh, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. And... So, uh, that's about the religion. So, beer and religion have been intertwined forever because when religion was more in charge of the government, when the church and the government were the same, which was pretty much all over the world, you know, thousands of years ago until some recent history, uh, and still still exists today in some cultures where the, the church basically controls the government and vice versa, the church dictated what could be in beer and what could not be in beer. It was, both were very important. Not just what you can put in the beer, but what you can't put in the beer. And then the monks, of course, perfected some of the things you could put in the beer based on what the church would allow. The gods, so therefore, because beer was so important, there was a god for everything. There was a god for just beer. There was a god for grain, hops, eventually, hops, Mm -hmm. yeast, eventually, when they figured out what that was. And the beer workers had patron saints. The the modern-day brewers had patron saints, even back to the ancient days. So you had probably 30 or 50 gods just involved in the brewing process. You would be praying to all of them all day, I guess. So, yeah, religion and gods were very important. And religious ceremonies, for some reason, the Christians went with wine eventually. But, you know, the joke is that Jesus would have been a beer drinker. So (laughs) it's interesting. I am... 
I am particularly enamored with Ninkasi because there is the hymn of Ninkasi, and it is this really beautiful um, hymn that is basically the directions for brewing beer. Um, I will not read it now because it's like 11 stanzas, I want to say, and slightly repetitive, and it does have some words that I would trip up on as far as pronunciation goes. Um, But if you do have a chance, go and look it up. Uh, It is really beautiful, and I like the idea that this is how people were taught how to drink, I mean, taught how to brew beer, um, and it was passed down through this oral tradition, and that beer, you know, at, the, at its beginnings, at its earliest days, was a story. Right. And I like how that's kind of, you know, continued. Well, they also did put it on clay tablets. The Babylonians and <laughs> Egyptians put it, you know, on paper, if you will. Uh, there was stone carvings. There was, you know, rock paintings in caves all depicting Egyptians or different civilizations drinking. And there was recipes for beer in Gilgamesh, which apparently is the oldest written recipe was in Gilgamesh. I'm not sure if that predated Ninkoski or not, but uh, there was a brewery in Oregon called the Ninkoski Brewing, which is a amazing place outside of Portland. Yeah, that's in Eugene, founded in 2006. Um, and they definitely do some great, some great beer. Um, but I liked, uh, and you know, I was on uh, Nikki Nellis' show last week, uh, Industry Night, and we were talking with the DC Homebrewers Club as well as the gentleman from Lost Loggers, um, and they do have uh, some classes coming up at the Hill Center, so definitely check that out if you have a chance. But um, we were talking about how women were the original brewers. Definitely. And Nikki admitted that this is this is the first you know, she's hearing about this. And it's one of those facts that, you know, in the beer world, we throw around a lot of facts, of course, because, you know, that's how we feed our egos. And, (laughs) um, but I just, for anyone out there listening who doesn't know this, you have to know women were the first brewers. Right. And it makes sense because hunter gatherers, you know, the men were the hunters, the women were the gatherers. So they were home taking care of the children, maybe providing the education if there, if there was some, in the village where the men were out, you know, fighting each other and killing large animals. <laughs> so the women would do hunting and ga- uh, hunting gathering of their own kind, which was for the herbs and the spices and the grains and seven different grains was in that beer that they discovered in Hafia mm-hmm. in Israel. That was the women gathering the ingredients and they brewed the beer. It just made sense that they brewed the beer. And in fact, you know, throughout the ages, you would not marry a woman who couldn't cook or make a beer. I mean, think about that today. Yeah. So brewer, women, women brewing was a big deal. Uh, since Halloween just happened, it's an interesting story that apparently witches, some of the witches brew was beer. And in fact, in New England, a lot of women who consider themselves witches uh, by self, like they actually confessed, they were, you know, they would make their own beer. And some of that boiling kettle of all kinds of weird stuff was actually ale. And they would sell ale because a lot of the witches weren't married. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have any income. So they would brew ale and sell it. So women were even more important in the new world when the settlers came over. Again, the men are out cutting logs down to build villages and build the churches. And the women were home brewing beer. And everyone drank beer. The children from birth through you know, adulthood were all drinking beer. And women were the, the brewers for thousands of years until about the Middle Ages. And that's when beer went from being a family ceremonial religious thing and a beverage that you drank for health reasons to commercial industrial profit making the merchant class got involved and then they kicked the women out of the brew house and the men took over just now now a lot of women are coming back to brewing which is great Mm -hmm. but that's about when women were basically kicked out of the brew house was the middle ages 
Yeah, good for us. Um, yeah, we uh, need more variety from everybody. <laughs> so we are going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back on Beer Me on Full Service Radio. Up all night with the same thing in my head Just wanting you here next to me It's been a long time, don't you agree? Welcome back to Beer Me on Full Service Radio, recording live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sarah Jane, and I'm here with Nick, the Baltimore beer trekker Nichols, uh, beer historian and beer educator. Uh, So before the break, we dove really deep into the ancient world of beer, uh, talking about some new findings and some new discoveries. Uh, I wax poetically about my love of Minkasi. Um, but now we're going to fast forward uh, many, many years and kind of delve into uh, hops uh, and their discovery. So I have a I have a poem that I will force all of you listeners to listen to at the end of the show, Um, but it comes from the Finnish saga Kelawala. Um, And, you know, this is a collection, uh, this is a big epic kind of um, collection of a narrative poem um, that was finally kind of compiled in the 19th century, but originally from the 17th century. Um, And this has a particular female brewer um, in the story, and she's trying to make a great beer uh, for a wedding feast. Um, And she discovers the use of hops in brewing with the help of a bee that she sends out to gather the magical plant, which I feel like that is a children's movie I could get behind (laughs) in a big way. Um, But... You know, this is obviously, there are so many different kind of myths and legends uh, and that kind of thing surrounding uh, hops, but uh, Nick here is going to clear it all up for us. Well, it's still as cloudy as an unfiltered hefe vice. <laughs> <laughs> but hops are interesting for a lot of reasons. It is a weed. It grows wild. And hops can be grown pretty much anywhere all around the world, except the best hops that are used for commercial brewing are pretty much from the latitude of, say, New York City, and then around the world, of course, to Portland, Oregon, and Washington, and Idaho, which are massive hop-producing states. Uh, uh, the largest hop farm in the, the United States is in Idaho, and that's mostly for Budweiser. I don't know what they're doing with the hops, but I'm biased towards uh, hoppy beers. And then, of course, going around Czechoslovakia and around the world. So, the basic agreement is around 1000 AD is when hops were introduced to beer, probably from the Germans. And it was probably done because they're antimicrobial and they increased the shelf life of beer. The flavoring was a bonus because the bitter, and now there's so many different kinds of hops, but most of the old school hops were, or ancient hops were bitter units, bittering units. And they gave it that piney, not citrusy yet. That hadn't. That's not. That wasn't the way it was back then. It was more citrus. Um, it's more piney, and 
hops were mostly added in large quantities to ship beer in large distances across the land or in, by water. And of course, the famous India Pale Ale. That's the pretty much the most famous story of hops was how the British troops in India wanted beer and they knew beer wouldn't survive the trip. So they put tons of hops in it, put it on the ship or a railroad eventually. And that's how they got India Pale Ale to ship to the troops because the, the hops would let it, uh, it wouldn't get contaminated. It wouldn't spoil and go skunky. But there's so many different stories about hops. Now, one of the interesting about ancient history is when the church versus the merchant class, so the secular versus the non-secular, the church may grew it, which was basically almost like a porridge, but it was alcoholic. And it was all kinds of herbs and spices and weird stuff that the church or the, the local priest would allow. Even the Pope got involved. And then there was the people that put hops in their beers. And you had different villages that were either loyal to the church or loyal to the king and the merchants. And there would actually be fistfights that would break out in German villages between people who liked hops and people who didn't like hops in their beer. It's interesting. So uh, hops are, you know, they're related to the marijuana family. They're part of the cannabis family, which and also I think it's morning glories, if I'm not mistaken. So, Yeah, it's all part of the nettle yeah, family. Yeah, and again, they grow everywhere. I've grown, I live in Maryland, and I've grown three different varieties in my backyard with some success and other people without so much. And, but hops are coming back in the northeast where they started in the New York area. Um, the Pacific Northwest still is doing well, but hops are starting to be grown everywhere, including Maryland. So they're, they're going more south, and with climate change, probably hops will be grown in the larger swath of latitude and longitude around the world. And uh, the demand is really high. So it's, but the hop history is, it's interesting how it was more of a German thing. The English really didn't like hoppy beers. So that's why they went with the more mildly malty ales versus the German lagers, which are hoppier generally. And can you dive into a little bit more of the, the German history um, as far as, you know, I'm interested in, in you know, how the church, um, you know, really was a, was a re- really big part of, of regulating a lot of that. Yeah, it goes back to taxes, too. And the, so the German uh, church, if you will, the, the, the Christian church uh, throughout the world, but in Germany, they made beer for mostly you know, their ceremonies for people were allowed to drink it. You know, the congregation could drink beer. It wasn't an issue. People would drink beer on Sundays, which a lot of other Christian religions had a big problem with. But the church would also say we could be in the beer and hops were allowed. Then you had the Rheinheiske boat, which is, you know, the Bavarian, which is, you know, related German beer purity law we all know about, which is that beer cannot be made with anything but hops, yeast, and malt. And not all this weird ingredients like chocolate and lemon peel and all kind, you know, strawberries or whatever. Was yeast part of the original Rheinheiske boat? Well, yeast wasn't part of the original. You're mm-hmm. right. It did come later. They added it later because they didn't know what yeast was, but until you know, the invention of the microscopes. So, but, but, Hops in general have also been demonized by the church because the church wants to sell gruel and grew it, their, their version of alcohol beer, versus the non-hoppies, versus the hoppy stuff. And when the hoppy beers became more popular in Germany and with the lagers versus the, Germ- the, uh, the church was making ales, there was a fight for economics. It was, it was for, for the uh, revenue. You know, the church was, they were cutting in on the church and mm-hmm. the church didn't like that. So the church started passing all these rules how you can't drink hoppy beer. And they even labeled, there was even church, they labeled the vine, the hop vine itself, a weed, and they called it the devil's weed. 
again, back to being related to marijuana, if you look at the old 50s and 60s anti-marijuana stuff, it was like weed is the devil's weed. Marijuana is the devil's weed. So hops got lumped into that. It's interesting. So the church has been like against hops forever. <laughs> it's interesting. So the Germans, of course, said, well, we're still going to make hoppy beer. And they continue to this day. And Americans, though, took it to a whole nother level. And that's more modern history, as you know, with Dogfish Head and the extreme amount of hops that are in beer today. So, uh, you know, kind of looking at uh, the history and, you know, everything that you've, you know, spent so much time uh, doing research and, you know, focusing on, um, you know, what is, what is your favorite part of, of beer history? I think when beer became a social beverage for everybody, it's different than wine. Wine and beer, I think, at one point separated. And wine became a more of a noble, high-income, sophisticated beverage. Are you talking about the wine. Greek and Romans? Or Just, are, you, are you talking about in, in the U.S.? In, into, I guess into modern history. Because okay. from, I don't know where exactly that happened. But beer's always been pedestrian, blue-collar working class beverage you can make in your in your kitchen in your backyard and the and the you know the uh, the clearings of the forest where the german nomadics would make their beer they would gather the stuff from the forest and have a clearing and make beer and it was beer was for everybody it was everybody's beverage i think mm-hmm. wine is maybe in italy obviously in maybe in greece it's more of a everybody's beverage but beer truly became i think the beverage of the people all over the world and in every culture almost every country has a brewery I think it was Frank Zappa that said, you can't be a country unless you have a beer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, I kind of like the social aspect of that. And I think, unfortunately, in the United States, in some places, beers become the beverage of, you know, the hooligan and the frat boy and massive quantities on the weekends and binge drinking on college campuses. And I'm like, well, that, the social part of that's great. The social aspect of that is great is that mom and dad can go drink a beer with their kids somewhere. And, well, back in the day, it was your children. Now you have to be 21. But, you know, it's a beverage for the people. And I think mm-hmm. that's the best part is, like, the history of beer is a people's history. Every culture has beer in their, in their history. And most countries keep it in their present-day history. And it's much more complex than wine. And then making wine is much easier. And the wine people aren't going to agree with it. But beer ingredients and the way you can make beer, just the math on that is astronomical compared to wine. So I like the complexity of beer. You usually don't use the term complexity when you're talking about beer. You think it's just yeast and hops and it's simple. But the brewer's art is much more complex than that. Mm. So I guess it's the history of, of beer is the social history of it, the fabric of our country. Our founding fathers in Philadelphia mm-hmm. drank beer by the hogshead. That's 70 gallons in a, in a big wooden keg. And they would roll them into Independence Hall while they were creating this country. They weren't drinking wine. They were drinking a little bit of spirits, but it mm-hmm. was mostly beer and cider. And that's cool that these people created an amazing country with a constitution when they were probably mostly of them were intoxicated on beer. Yeah. <laughs> um, excellent. Well, as promised, I am going to uh, force you all to listen to this uh, poem from the Finnish saga Kelewala. And this is a poem that expresses the admiration for beer. So great indeed the reputation of the ancient beer of Kelewe said to make the feeble hardy, famed to dry the tears of women, famed to cheer the broken-hearted, make the aged young and supple, make the timid brave and mighty, 
Make the brave men ever braver. Fill the heart with joy and gladness. Fill the mind with wisdom sayings. Fill the tongue with ancient legends. Only makes the fool more foolish. <laughs> wow. That's... Yeah, I, um, I have an a odd affinity for uh, Finnish uh, beer history and, and beer. It's, a, it's an odd uh, cork of mine. Um, so thank you, Nick. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, definitely check out any classes uh, that he has available at Howard Community College and Johns Hopkins. Or, you know, if you're a historical society, he will lecture upon request. I'm uh, trying to get over to the old Herrick uh, mansion eventually. Yeah, uh, the Herrick Museum. Yeah. Um, and speaking of which, they have a lot of really great events coming up. Uh, let me just double check here. Um, I believe it is the 16th. Uh, they have the homebrewed um, opening party. They're launching a new uh, exhibit. Uh, Kim Bender, do not uh, be mad at me for not having the right out in front of me right now. Um, and I know Pizza Paradiso is going to be having their fall um, festival uh, beer event this weekend. And of course, uh, at Right Proper, they are hosting a beer yoga on Saturday. Interesting. <laughs> I was think I actually bought about three acres in Woodstock, Maryland. It's uh, west of Ellicott City, where I used mm-hmm. to live, and my neighbor has goats and sheep. And I'm thinking about combining, you know, my love for beer and the goats and the sheep with the yoga in the backyard. And I'll let you know. There's goat yoga everywhere. Jester <laughs> King down in Austin does it. It's a big. It's a big hit. Any excuse to drink more beer, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, Definitely uh, check us out anywhere that you can get a podcast, and we'll see you next week. This is Beer Me on Full Service Radio. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on Mixcloud.com slash Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.